0: We know you have lots of questions.
1: If you think that you've developed symptoms.
0: Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed.
2: Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell.
1: Welcome to the podcast COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Kasten, who is a board-certified and practicing pediatric and autopsy pathologist. She has a master's degree in infectious disease epidemiology from the London School of Tropical Medicine, a year of postgraduate research in mathematical modeling of epidemics at Oxford University, field work in epidemic control, and a master's degree in the history of medicine, also from Oxford University. Her medical degree is from the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, and she has also conducted several years of basic science research in virology, the regulation of inflammation, and gene therapy. Jennifer, thank you for joining me on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. Would you mind by starting off and just telling us a little bit more about your background, how you came to a career in medicine, and about your clinical work?
0: Well, I grew up absolutely fascinated by all of those popular sirens, virus hunter novels and movies. I always thought epidemiology was absolutely fascinating, that it was this perfect confluence of science and exotic locales and human factors. And it was always my dream and my goal to become an epidemiologist. And I was fortunate enough to win a scholarship to go over to the United Kingdom and study at the London School of Tropical Medicine. So I actually trained up mostly as a malariologist and that was most of my field work, but I did do a couple of other uh, projects on other diseases. And so as you just heard, because she so kindly recited my background and it made me sound probably a great deal more impressive than I actually am, COVID-19 is almost the perfect storm of everything I've ever done in my entire life because <laughs> it combines virology and the inflammation research. It combines the epidemiology background, the mathematical modeling and of course, I'm a clinical doctor. So basic pathophysiology, pathology, the way this virus infects and kills people, all of it has come together in this Venn diagram that says Jennifer Caston. But at the same time, who am I? I'm absolutely nobody. I tell people this all the time. I run this Facebook page, which is basically science communication. And people say, well, is, hang on, is any of this your research? And the answer is no, which is actually great. Because if I were actually employed somewhere as an epidemiologist, I couldn't be on Facebook talking about all this data. That wouldn't be ethical. And if it was my own research that I was putting out, obviously, you can't release peer review research straight to the public on Facebook. So I, I'm in this sort of translating, parsing, science communication role. And it's been an absolutely fantastic ride.
1: Well, we need people like you who have expertise in these fields to kind of dive into the research and and help make it make sense so that the, the public can really wrap their heads around it, especially as it comes out as fast as it has been. And as you mentioned, you've been putting up some really great content about the COVID pandemic on your Facebook page. Do you mind telling us about the origins of this effort and about the response that you've received so far, especially in the midst of this pandemic?
0: Yeah, of course. Well, this is an entirely new sort of venture for me. Back in early March, when everyone felt like the storm clouds were gathering and the US was really bracing itself for COVID, the environment I think was one of of fear and of dread. And there was a lot of misinformation and speculation that started going around. And I said, hang on, I think I can actually have something to say here. And I started writing posts just on my personal page geared to my friends and family sort of discussing various aspects of the epidemic. And they they did take off. And people said, wow, this is this, I'm finding this valuable. I'm finding it helpful. And so quickly it became necessary to sort of separate that content out from the rest of my private life. Because all the people that wanted to hear something about COVID don't want to see pictures of me running in the woods. And all the people who want to see me running in the woods are like, okay, seriously enough about COVID, please. So I started this public Facebook page. Um, Again, it's a science communication page. I don't pretend to be the world expert on COVID. It's simply translating and collating data, looking at really all of the aspects of of the epidemic from the clinical medical side to the vaccinology, the virology, and also of course the epidemiology.
1: That's great. And in one of your posts, Jennifer, you talked about the idea of state report cards. Can you tell us a little bit more about this idea?
0: Well, that was just a little little bit of a joke, but um, as you know, this is a very heterogeneous country. We're a federalist, 50-nifty United States, and we also have a lot of jurisdictions within those states. So the epidemic in a country as big and diverse as the United States, diverse in terms of its human geography as well as its physical geography, it looks really different in different places. And states quite sensibly, are making different plans based on their reality on the ground. But that being said, I think there's some general principles that should guide any location, you know, in terms of considering when it's safe to have people mixing again. I'll stress right up front, I am in no way qualified to opine on politics or economic issues that is so far outside of my wheelhouse. But I do feel comfortable discussing just the epidemiological principles that those policymakers can use. So for starters, I think you need to know how many people in your place are actually infected right now with COVID. Because when you allow people to mix again, you wanna know A, how many there are, and then B, who are they? Because we don't want them out and about, right? We want them quarantined, and we want their contacts quarantined. Let's find them. So testing for active infection, very important. Also, number two, how many people in your place are immune? You want to know that because that's going to predict the shape of the second wave. You want to have widespread testing in place. And you also need to have a lot of people hired to do that hard, labor-intensive, active case-searching phase. Those are what we call the shoe-leather epidemiologists, the contact tracers. They find, um, let's say, Ted. Ted, you were a very naughty boy. You had COVID. And you went, what's, what's your favorite hobby, Ted? Snowboarding. Snowboarding. Well, you're probably not going to go snowboarding in.
1: Not maybe, right now.
0: Hey, yeah. How about. A- Let's say
1: going to baseball games.
0: Going to baseball games. Yeah. So Ted, you know, he has all the symptoms of COVID and he packs into the Dodgers game. And now that shoe leather epidemiologists have to find every single person who sat within a 12 foot radius of him and track them down and see if they have symptoms. That is so labor-intensive, and you have to have all of those people hired, ready to go before you can open the doors and say, okay, let's see how we mix. So that's, that's, to me, just sort of common sense and epidemiologically informed. And the White House actually put out a plan for the U.S., which was a lot more stringent, sort of a lot more lofty. And, and it was very sound, in my opinion. They said basically you want a 14-day straight decline in all of the major indicators. Number one, the number of people who say they have a flu like illness, which includes COVID. Number two, a decline in the people who actually lab confirmed test positive for COVID, 14 day straight decline. Number three, people who are hospitalized and are sick for COVID. Number four, deaths. They also want to see testing in place, they want to see PPE in place, and they want states to have a surge plan just in case the second wave is really bad, which we don't think it will be, but in, if it is, they want a plan in place. And to me, that seems fantastic. Um, unfortunately, currently, no state actually meets those criteria. And in terms of testing enough to to really have their finger on the pulse of the shape of the epidemic in your local place, only nine states, uh, as of last week at least, met those criteria.
1: Okay. That's a great description of all of that. And I don't know how you guessed that I'm a Dodger fan, but you did, or you pulled that one out of a hat. None of us has a crystal ball, um, but I do want to, and you brought up the idea.
0: I have a crystal ball.
1: Oh, you do. You, you might actually. So we're going to tap into that crystal ball then. You brought up this idea of about a second wave of COVID infections. I'd like to hear your thoughts, your opinion about the, the likelihood of, a, of another wave or another surge.
0: Okay, well, my crystal ball tells me that you're going to meet a tall stranger next Tuesday. No, you won't, because we're all social distancing. You're not going to meet any strangers next Tuesday. Anyway, so the shape of the second wave. First and foremost, I think everyone listening needs to know the second wave is 100% inevitable. It is expected, and it does not mean that everything we've done in this first wave all of the social distancing measures, the quarantine, all of the changes that we've all made to our lives and the sacrifices, the economic sacrifices, it does not mean that all of that was for nothing or that it was ineffective. I want everyone to understand that. The second wave is going to be one of two things. Whatever it is, it's going to be impacted by three factors. Factor one, How many active infections, active cases of COVID are there right now? We've got Ted going to the Dodgers game. And then now we've got the 12 people sitting next to him and around him at the Dodgers game, etc. We need to know exactly how many Ted's there are out there. Don't get me wrong. There's only one Ted. You're special. But Ted's in the generic sense. Who are they? Where are they? Etc. Number two, it's going to be impacted again by the fraction of the population that's immune. And number three, it's going to be impacted potentially, I think so, by the seasonality of the virus. It does appear that this virus has a favored little band of temperatures and humidity conditions, et cetera. So we expect in the U.S. in the summer, in the northern hemisphere, that transmission is naturally going to be lower. So all of that put together might mean that the second wave could be very muted if either The number of cases is very low or they're very well contained by aggressive public health case searching efforts or, and if there's a lot of people who are already immune and the virus just simply can't spread very much, even as we begin to start mixing again.
1: Great. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Jennifer, you also talked in one of your Facebook posts about the lack of regulation of antibody tests. Um, Can you tell us about the origins of this lack of regulation, where we are now with antibody testing, and whether any of the currently available antibody tests are adequately reliable?
0: Yes. And the good news is it's better now than it used to be. So everyone should feel comforted that we're in good shape now. Basically, in the United States, to offer anything to the public, a drug, a device, or a test, it has to be safe and B, efficacious, or it has to work. And we prove both those things by submitting all this data to the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. We look it over with a fine-tooth comb, independently verify it, and that usually takes a couple of years, and they approve it. And it goes out to the public safe, and it works. Well, in an emergency with a capital E, we do not have a couple of years, right? So in an emergency, the brakes come off just a little bit. And instead, typically uh, a test maker can offer their test to the public once they submit validation data to the FDA, proving that it's safe, proving that it works. And instead of the FDA spending years looking it over, they say, We'll just take you for your word. You can offer it to the public with a whole bunch of disclaimers. That's called an emergency use authorization. So in February, the United States declared an emergency and the bottleneck on testing started to improve somewhat. However, it was not fast enough and it wasn't anywhere close to what the country needed. So the FDA said, all right, brakes are all the way off now, partner. Like saddle up and we ride it down because we you all can do whatever you want, more or less. Basically, they wanted to get as many tests out to the public as possible, sacrificing the usual quality standards in order to just get something out. So uh, by early March, the rules were simply that a company could offer its tests to the public and all it had to do was notify the FDA that it would apply for one of those EUAs within 15 days. But they could totally be lying about whether or not it worked and whether or not it was safe. Nobody was gonna check. So what happened? Human nature being what it is, Ted, what happened?
1: We had a whole bunch of companies popping up and putting out tests and bringing in tests in from other countries and not no, not validating them, um, not all kinds all. of issues.
0: No, not at all. Within 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 the, By the end of March and early April, there were 90 different serology tests, antibody tests on the market in the United States. You could order them off the internet and anybody without any qualifications whatsoever could literally open like a pop-up shop in a parking lot wearing their uncle's hazmat suit and start offering tests to the public. That does not happen in the United States in peacetime conditions. And it had the usual expected quality. So one of the the more touching examples, unfortunately, is the city of Laredo in Texas. The city authorities decided that they would order $500,000 worth of tests from China and they would be the first city in the US to widespread test their people for antibodies to COVID. Fabulous, right? Great initiative. Unfortunately, those tests were 20%
1: reliable. Science, science, science. Science, science. science. Hello, podcast fans. Wanna get weird with us? myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual, all to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts, the Mad Scientist Podcast.
0: So so literally, if you got the result from that test that said yes or no, you should, you should assume the opposite because the opposite at least has an 80% chance of being right. <laughs>
1: right, <laughs> not, not, even even co- not even a coin flip. Not even.
0: No, not, not even. I mean, in the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom ordered 17 million tests from China and had to return them all because they could only detect extremely high levels of antibodies. So you had tests that were giving you false negatives. You actually had the antibodies, it just couldn't detect them. And you had a lot of tests that were giving you false positives you were never infected with COVID at all. Instead, you were probably infected with one of the common cold coronaviruses and the test was giving you a false COVID result. So it was was just a disaster. And unfortunately, that trickled down to the public as all these antibody tests are junk and they're not reliable, right? So fortunately, the FDA tightened things up again. So now, number one, only laboratories with an appropriate certification can perform these tests not your Uncle Lenny in the parking lot, which is good. And then secondly, they've actually started validating some of the company's data. We have several very, very, very high quality serology tests on the market now. Um, and we also have, this is totally legit, it's a, it's a separate pathway, but all of the famous academic institutions that you might have heard of um, with decades of experience in developing these kinds of tests They've also developed their own in-house testing. So it's not for sale to the public. You can't buy, let's say Stanford University's test, but it's there if you're a Stanford patient and it's, and it's great, right? So now the United States is in really good shape. We have two huge commercial actors that do the lion's share of outpatient laboratory testing in the US. They both have very, very high, highly reliable tests so, so, so Americans now can feel fairly confident that if, they, if they're being asked to take an antibody test, it's reasonably reliable.
1: Right. And that reliability, just to emphasize, really has just happened in the last couple of weeks, literally. Yes.
0: That's right. Now, I'm going to explain something that's going to just probably make people's brains melt out of their ears, but it is actually a really important thing. And that is the concept of positive predictive value of a test. You might say, oh, my God, I'm turning this podcast off. But hang on, just hang on. It'll be good. So it means what it sounds like. If you get a positive result, can you hang your hat on it? Like, are you going to take it to the bank? Are you going to bet the farm that this is true or not? The positive predictive value of a test depends on how many people in the population actually have COVID. You might say, hang on, how on earth does that work? Because shouldn't it all just be independent events? I will explain. So let's say you have a test that has a 99% true negative rate, but a 1% false positive rate. Okay, that's really good. If you have a population that has 50% of people who actually have COVID, that test with its 1% false positive will say 51% of you have COVID. Ah, Who cares, right? No big deal. But let's say your population has 0.1% truly having covid and your test still has that 1% false positive rate so now it's going to say 1% of you have covid instead of 0.1% it is going to overestimate the prevalence by a factor of 10 so that is why when you you'll see this fancy dictum that positive predictive value is predicated on prevalence it's true so it might very well mean for all the americans listening to this podcast that in new york city you can really, really believe that your positive results real. You can bet the farm, and in northern Minnesota, you might not be.
1: Right, it, it relies on the the prevalence in that community, and that that's probably one of the best descriptions of of that topic I've I've heard. So you should go on the epidemiology circuit and teach about that.
0: Yeah, it's a very it's a very lucrative circuit. You know that. <laughs>
1: Jennifer, I'd like to ask you to discuss the approaches that Sweden and Norway have taken and how each country has done with COVID deaths, as well as with developing herd immunity. The, the comparison between these two countries is real popular in the media. You did a great post on it, and so I'd love to have you break that down for the audience here.
0: Well, thank you very much. And I will, um, I will openly acknowledge the fact that one of the reasons why this is such a popular topic is because the economic implications in particular are very different. And again, I want everyone to know I am aware of them, but I am a total incompetent ignoramus and will not discuss them. So, Sweden and Norway are an absolutely perfect natural experiment because the two countries have s- essentially everything important in common with each other. They're in the same climate zone. They had COVID imported at the same time. They have Similar populations in terms of genetics, in terms of population density, in terms of the wealth of the country, in terms of the robustness of their healthcare system, in terms of the percentage of the population who are immigrants and who come from elsewhere in the world. Essentially, everything between the two nations that you would care about when it comes to an infectious disease epidemic are similar. So what are the differences? The differences are simply that Sweden has adopted a much more lax position on social distancing than did Norway. And as a result, Norway has had per capita about half as many cases and only about one sixth as many deaths. So Sweden's had six times as many deaths. And you might say, well, does that mean the mortality rate's different? No, it doesn't. It means that Norway adopted a strategy of very aggressive widespread testing, so they were actually able to detect many more of their cases and appropriately tally them up. And Sweden has probably missed many cases, just like we have in the United States. So from an epidemiological standpoint, Norway by a mile, the Norwegian strategy was superior. It averted deaths and suffering and has kept the epidemic at a very manageable low level.
1: Perfect. Um, We're now seeing cases of this condition called multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children. Just right prior to that, it was called pediatric inflammatory multisystem syndrome or PIMS. We're going to call it MISC for multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children since that's the current terminology. Can you discuss what this condition is and what the current thinking is about it?
0: I really liked saying PIMS.
1: So did I. It was easier.
0: It's easier. It's monosyllabic, and also there's a drink called pims. <laughs> that is just the perfect thing to drink on a lovely summer day on the grass, having a picnic. But we can st- we can stick with misc, all right? Yes, So misc is a mysterious phenomenon, um, but but a very important one. And what's interesting, well, several things are interesting about it, but one of them is that it wasn't really reported or observed very much in the East Asian countries as their epidemic raged on. Um, And and China, of course, has had a large number of cases, a large number of pediatric cases, and just really didn't see it. Once it got into Europe, though, and then over here, we we have seen it. And it's a hyperinflammatory response in children, which is somewhat connected in time to infection with COVID. Some of the children test positive for active infection when they develop it. Some of the children test positive for antibodies when they develop it. And then there's a small handful of cases that fit all of the clinical picture, but yet have yet to actually test positive for COVID. So it does raise a few questions about diagnostic categories. So essentially, again, it's a cytokine storm and a little child-sized body, tempest in a teacup. And there's something about the virus that activates the child's own immune system such that it wreaks havoc on multiple tissues. And in that sense, it looks very similar, but not identical, to a condition called Kawasaki syndrome, which has long been of interest because no one's entirely sure what causes Kawasaki. Kawasaki's is an immune-mediated inflammatory response that mostly attacks a child's small and medium-sized blood vessels. And it's long been thought that Kawasaki's was a post-viral phenomenon, but we never really proved it. Um, Though interestingly, I did dig out a a nice case report that showed Kawasaki's in response to a different human coronavirus um, in Connecticut back in like 2005. So it's similar to Kawasaki's. And one of the ways it's similar is that Kawasaki's is famous for causing inflammation in the children's hearts and in the blood vessels that supply the heart, the coronary arteries. And sometimes those vessels can get so inflamed, they just kind of pop. Out, puff out like a balloon, and dilate. That's called an aneurysm. So the coronary arteries can become aneurysmal um, just because the inflammation weakens the wall to such a degree. And under the microscope, we pathologists can look at these blood vessels, and you can see the inflammation in the vessels. You can see all all the sort of inflammatory cascade in all the tissues. Another thing that it's been likened to is toxic shock syndrome. Toxic shock syndrome is caused by a bacterium, but not in the typical way, not when the bacterium actually infects your cells or infects your tissues. But instead, it secretes a toxin, and that toxin binds to part of your immune system called your T cells. And then it turns them all on, and your T cells think they're basically attacking a foreign invader, and they're not. They're attacking, again, your own tissues. So it's a hyperinflammatory sort of runaway train kind of cascade. And that's exactly what we're seeing with MISC. And it, 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 most children with this condition do recover. Of course, the deaths have been getting a lot of coverage. And so I think the public might fear that this has a very high mortality rate. It doesn't. But it's certainly high enough that we should all be very worried about it. And the pediatricians in particular are very appropriately keeping it on their radar every time they have a child with COVID.
1: Right. and a- Absolutely. And, and fortunately, the number of cases of severe or critical cases of COVID in children is actually very low. And, and overall, the number of, of cases of MISC seem to be low, but it, it exists. And so we need to be finding those needles in the haystack. Um, there have been theories that MISC could actually be related to re-exposure to COVID-19 as opposed to the first-time exposure and that this re-exposure is setting off the body's immune system. Can you share your thoughts about this yeah. theory?
0: Yeah, that was, that was something that I theorized myself. Just, it just makes sense. It's sort of a priming the pump phenomenon. So uh, a lot of the cases, and this makes sense because just a lot of the cases in children are in the New York area where there's just a high prevalence. There's a lot of virus circulating around. And so I've thought, well, there could be really one of about three things happening One is that this is a cytokine storm type phenomenon, the same as we see in adults, it's just in children. And what do they teach you in medical school, Ted, about children and adults?
1: They are not not little adults.
0: Right, so they don't get prostate cancer and they don't drink themselves to death and their cytokine storms look different. So they have different symptoms and they have different tissues that get sort of more affected than others. So that could be theory number one. Theory number two is that um, As you recover from a viral infection, your body starts chopping up virus and it can leave the antigen part, the part that your immune system really recognizes as foreign and responds to, it can leave antigen just hanging around. It's kind of didn't take out the trash properly kind of thing. And so your immune system is like raring to go because it just fought off this massive infection. Pump has been primed. And it recognizes the antigen hanging out in the child's own tissues and says, attack. So that's theory number two. And then theory number three is, is, as you said, is potentially a re-exposure phenomenon. So the child had COVID, maybe they weren't even all that symptomatic. They successfully fought it off. Now they've got antibodies. Now they've got the, the right kind of T cells hanging out and ready to go. And then they get exposed again because there's so much virus circulating around, like in the New York area. And it's not that the infection reestablishes itself. It's not that they've been reinfected. It's just, again, you've got antibodies, you're going to fight it off. And boom, it just goes haywire. It's just, like I said, the pump was primed and it's an overreaction.
1: Right. Yeah. And we have a, a lot to learn about this since it's a, a kind of a brand new phenomenon that that is mimicking some of the other ones, as you mentioned, like Kawasaki's and toxic shock, but does seem to be a little bit different in terms of how it's acting on different organ systems. Jennifer, these have been great um, descriptions of a lot of really interesting topics related to COVID-19 and this pandemic. Um, One of the questions that I've been asking all of the guests on the show is if they would like to give a shout out to a small business or a restaurant in their community, with the idea that these small business owners and the workers at the establishments are, are having a hard time economically, and anything we can do to give them a little boost would be great. So, are there any in your community that you'd like to mention?
0: I would love to, and that's a fabulous initiative, Ted. Thank you so much. My main hobby is running alone in the woods. So I've been basically apocalyptic before it was cool. And as a as a competitive trail runner, I kind of compete around in in my region. Um, I'm a big fan of a few local gear shops. One of them is Jack Rabbit Cincinnati. Sell great trail shoes and everything else you need. Another one is Roads, Rivers, and Trails, which will set you up for any outdoor adventure you care to have. And then lastly, the Buckeye Running Company.
1: Great. We will make sure that those three get into the show notes so that anybody in your neck of the woods can uh, give them a little bit of support um, when they hear the podcast and take a look at the notes. So thank you for that. Uh, Jennifer, this has been great. I want to thank you on behalf of the podcast and our listeners for lending your expertise and helping break down some of these complex topics.
0: All right. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. Have a good evening. Okay.
0: Okay. Bye.
2: That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Bright again. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID 19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslonga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Arslonga, Vita Brevis.